Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who continues to talk to us even when we have been so notoriously evil against you. We do not see our sin for what it really is. Yet, Lord, you continue to speak into our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness by which we can actually have uh, uh, ears to listen to you this morning, that forgiveness that has come by Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would take advantage of the fact that you have granted us access to your throne room this morning. And, Lord, we pray that we would listen to what you have to say to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series in the book of Hosea. And we have been working our way through that uh, book together in some larger chunks than I'm usually uh, prone to preaching from. And this morning we've actually come to Hosea chapter 6, which is found on page 892 of the Black Church Bible. So I encourage you to open that up to this morning. Hosea chapter 6 page 892 of the Black Church Bibles, and we'll be looking at chapter 6 and chapter 7 this morning together. And Hosea is a prophet who's spent a significant amount of ministry time in the Israelite history, both in the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. Uh, So the kingdom of Israel split after King Solomon, who was the uh, third king of Israel, under uh, the son of King David. After King Solomon, there was a split, and Hosea ministered throughout a good portion of that period where the kingdom was split. And we've been looking at Hosea and what he had to say, and particularly how he is unique in that his life was used to portray God's relationship with his people, particularly God's relationship to his people as a groom to a bride, that God's people were a bride and he is the groom, and how our sin is like Adultery. When every, every time we sin, it is like we are committing adultery against our groom, who is God. And Hosea was commanded to marry a woman who would commit adultery and did commit adultery. But God, God also instructed Hosea to welcome his wife back despite her adultery, which is a wonderful sign of God's grace to us, that despite our unfaithfulness to him, he welcomes us back. And so we've been looking at this book together and we've come to chapter 6 and in the beginning of chapter 6 verses 1, 2 and 3 it appears that the Israelites are starting to go on the right path. They have been warned about judgment, they have been warned about their sin and how serious it is and the opening verses appear to be quite positive when we examine them together. And so I'll read those verses now as we look at them. Verse 1 of Chapter 6 opens with, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we might, may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Now, it's not quite clear as to whether this is Hosea the prophet commanding the people to turn to the Lord or whether it is actually the people saying this. Uh, But it's sounding very positive. And it's really speaking of the act of repentance. Repentance is a word that is very common uh, throughout the scriptures. We're commanded to repent. 
And it means a turning. And that's, even though the word repentance doesn't occur in these verses, that is what is being spoken of when it opens with verse 1, come let us return to the Lord. That is what repentance is, where you turn your back on sin and you turn towards the living God and start to do what he wants rather than what you want. It is a change of mind. And that is what is being described in verses 1, 2 and 3. But the problem is, as you continue on in chapter 6, it looks like the repentance isn't genuine that it goes away all too quickly if this is the repentance of the Israelites. What do we read in verse 4? Verse 4 of Hosea chapter 6, we read, What can I do with you, Ephraim? Ephraim is one of the tribes of Israel, but it's often used to refer to all of Israel. And what can I do with Judah? Remember, the kingdom is split into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. What can I do with you? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. What is their love like? It's like that early morning mist or the early dew that disappears. So this sounds really good. They're wanting to turn to the Lord. We'll go back to God. But it's a love that vanishes all too quickly. Why is that? Well, the Israelites keep on sinning. Despite the fact that they're saying, well, let us return to the Lord, they continue to sin. They may say good things. They may think some good things. But the way that they live shows that they're not truly repentant, that they haven't turned their back upon sin. They're saying some positive things, but not doing positive things. And God is angry about that, as we read in the following verses. Verse 5, it says, Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophet. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of wicked men, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes. I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution. And Israel is defiled. So immediately after, they've said, let us return to the Lord. What do we see? Their love is vanishing like a morning mist and their sin is still ongoing. They're committing shameful acts of wickedness. And yet we see that they're trying to show some repentance through it. How do we see that in those verses? Well, in verse 6, what does the Lord say? For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What are the Israelites doing? They're going, okay, we can go out and sin through the week and then we'll come to the temple, we'll offer a sacrifice signifying our repentance, that we're sorry for our sins and it'll all be okay. But does God want that? No, he'd much rather you do the right thing than do the wrong thing and then offer a sacrifice to make up for the sin that you've done. It's far better to be obedient than to offer a sacrifice for the wrong that you've committed. Better not to sin at all than to sin and offer a sacrifice. Because obviously then, are you truly repentant? If you think you can go out and sin and just offer a sacrifice and it's all good, God will accept me. That's okay. There is no wrath from God towards me. And the trouble is, the Israelites are acting as though God does not see their deeds. They're treating God like he's a naive spouse who doesn't know that adultery is going on within his own marriage. And that is what is spoken of in verses 11 and following of chapter 6, in, in following into uh, chapter 7. 
Verse 11 of chapter 6 of Hosea reads, Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practice deceit. Thieves break into houses. Bandits rob in the streets. But they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. These people of Israel, they're approaching God and as God says, I would heal them, but then their sins continue to happen. And so I don't restore them. They're, they're like people who just think, God doesn't see what I'm doing. I can go and offer a sacrifice at the temple and maybe God's vision is, of me is really only restricted to the temple. And then I can go out and sin in the rest of the land and it's all okay. But God is a spouse who does see. He remembers their deeds. He knows what they're doing with their lives. They can come with this false repentance, but it is a false repentance if it's not followed by good deeds, that they are not actually stopping the sin in their lives. The other way that God describes them is that they're like a burning oven that doesn't need stirring and devours them, that their sin is so hot it actually devours, and that's in verses 3 and following. Verse 3, it says, They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven, whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine, and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smoulders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven. They devour their rulers or their kings fall, and none of them calls on me. See the image that the Lord is using of the Israelites there? Their sin is like an oven. It's stoking up this fire, and it's building and building. It's like a fire that doesn't need stirring by the baker so that it will cook the bread. It just keeps on burning up and eventually devours them and the people around them. And so their sin is very serious, despite their attitude of repentance. It's a false repentance when their sin is like an oven smoldering away. And if Israel is repentant, they're like a half-baked cake, is the other way that they're used to describe, uh, that God describes them in verse 8. It says, Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake not turned over. They look good on maybe one side, but the other side is all burnt. They're like a flat cake not turned over that hasn't been cooked properly uh, because they are not following God as they should. They look good on one side. They may look even repentant, but their deeds show that there's a lack of true repentance there. And then God uses... There's so many images here in this passage as to how their sin is described. Another way that he describes them in verse 9 is as a head of hair sprinkled with grey. Verse 9 says, Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realise it. His hair is sprinkled with grey, but he does not notice. This is a text that may be a bit hard for some people to hear if they're afraid of grey hair. And obviously that is something that has happened for centuries. That here... People are concerned when they start to get grey hair. Why is that? Because it shows that their body is declining, that age is starting to catch up with them. It's an indication that life is starting to go. And what is happening with Israel? Well, they are there, they look good in some respects, but there's grey hair at the edges because of their sin. 
which is showing that there is decline. And what, what about this grey hair? They don't notice it. They don't care. They don't notice the sin that's in their lives. The tips of their hair are growing grey. The tips of their lives are grey because of their sin, but they don't care. The other way that they're described, another image used to um, describe their, their attitude is in verse 11 where they're described like a dove. It says Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I'll throw my net over them. I'll pull them down like birds of the air. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak lies against me. So the image, we've had a few images now. We've had an oven, we've had half-baked cake, we've had graying hair. But here's this image of they're like a dove, a dove that is turning but senseless. Remember, repentance is a turning. But where are these guys turning to? They're turning every which way except towards God. They're turning to foreign nations to help them in their pain. When they're not supposed to go to those foreign nations, they're supposed to go to God. They're like a a dove that's easily deceived and senseless and easily caught then by God and punished as indicated in the verses. And then we see that the Lord speaks about their crying about their misery. In verse 14 it says, They do not cry out to me from their hearts. But wail upon their beds. They gather together for grain and new wine, but turn away from me. The Israelites are very upset about what's going on in their lives. They're wailing on their beds. They're crying. But their tears are not with a view to crying out to God. They're not crying to God. Instead, they're crying about the misery that they're going through. And the last image that we have in chapter 7 to describe them is as a faulty bow. We read in verse 15, I trained them and strengthened them, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. They're like an archer's bow. Looks good, but when you actually go to use it, it's faulty which is what their repentance, if they've got any repentance, looks like. They look like they're sorry for their sins. They may even offer a sacrifice as God has required. But when you actually dig a little deeper, when you go to use them, like you go to use a bow, you see that they're still sinning grievously against God. And so all these images in chapter 6 and 7 help describe people today in their repentance as well. People may say the good things of verses 1 and 3. They may say, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Let us turn to God in repentance. But then as you look at their lives, you see that they're not truly repentant because they continue in their sin. They're like the morning mist, which is useless in one respect. If you're wanting the morning dew that comes up to really help prosper your garden, I know this, that I look after the small patch of garden in our backyard that's got a bit of grass in it, and I try to care for it, but I can't rely on dew in the morning to water it. I have to make sure that I water it if it's going to prosper. And so many people, they say they love God, but it vanishes, and it's worthless then. It's not going to prosper them at all. 
Or they believe that religious rituals would make up for their sin. As I said before, God warns them that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. And people so often think that, that I can go to church on Sunday, I can participate in the worship, I may even take part in the different ordinances or sacraments, take part in baptism, the Lord's Supper. I can be there, I can give to God's kingdom. And then once I leave the building, I can go and do what I like because I've actually kind of paid God off for the week so I can continue sinning. But God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to do the right thing all the time, not just come and make up for it in some way. Or another way that people treat God is, by the way, the Israelites were treating God there, that they think that God doesn't see what's going on in their lives. They think that God doesn't know, that God doesn't remember what they do. But God is all-seeing. And we also see that some people are like an oven, As their sin continues, it's burning up, it's heating up more and more, and it devours anything good. I know this for the little bit of cooking that I do is generally on a barbecue. And I know that if I overheat the barbecue and throw meat on it straight away, it'll get devoured. It won't get cooked through properly as it should be. If I throw the uh, the kebabs or the sausages on and it's burning hot, the meat will stick there and fry very rapidly. And that's what we like with our sin. If we continue in it, it builds, it smoulders, it gets hotter and hotter and devours anything good in our lives. And then, of course, we're like a half-baked cake sometimes as well with our repentance. We look good on one side, but the underneath is all burnt because of our sin. We continue in the sin. We say, oh, I'm sorry for it, but then go out and continue sinning. And I know that from... That, that illustration is true from my limited cooking experience on the barbecue as well. I put the meat on, I make sure the temperature's right, that it's not an overheated barbecue, but then I've got to make sure I turn the sausages or turn the kebabs over, because otherwise it just gets cooked on one side. And no one wants to eat, well, at least the family that I serve, <laughs> wants to eat half-cooked meat. It's disgusting. You don't want to eat charcoal on one side and raw meat on the other. But that's what we're like if we come to God in so-called repentance. I'm very sorry, Lord, and it looks really nice, but all the time you're still intending to go on sinning. Or we are like someone with graying hair with our repentance. The decline is there, it's shown, but we are too oblivious to it, which is interesting that some people take such an interest in looking at the physical gray hair in their lives but are not interested in the spiritual grey hair, the decline of their spiritual state that is there to see by their sin. But they're not interested in doing something about that. They might be interested in doing something about the physical grey hair and hiding that, but not interested in dealing with the spiritual grey hair. And so often people are like doves as well that are described in the passage where it said in verse 11 of chapter 7, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. They are turning, but they're not turning to God. They're turning every which way. What can I do to solve my problem with sin? I'll look to other people in my life. I'll look to other gods to help me. But they don't turn to the one who can truly help them. They're like a pigeon, which is very similar to a dove from what I can gather which is rather senseless. I always find these birds sometimes when I'm walking in the city and they're strutting around and moving in every which way and then you actually go to avoid hitting them sometimes and what do they do? Senselessly they fly into your path. They don't know to keep left as Australians should. 
including the animals. The doves don't have that sense. And that's what people are like, turning every which way except towards God. Or maybe they cry about their sin, about the pain of their sin. But they're really crocodile tears. They're very upset. Crocodile tears are ones where it's not true tears. There's a show. There's no real sorrow over the sin in their lives. Or they're like a faulty bow. It looks good, but when you go to examine it a bit more closely, it is useless. And so what do we need? What is this passage telling us today that we need? It was telling the Israelites a long time ago what they need. What is it telling us today? It is telling us that we need genuine repentance. And what is genuine repentance? It's a turning from sin. It's not just a, I'm sorry for what I've done. It's a, I don't want to do it anymore. I want to stop sinning and do what is right. Because if we think about it, that makes sense. Particularly if we think of the context of a spouse, an unfaithful spouse, which is the context of most of the book of Hosea. It's set there from the beginning that God sees us as his bride and when we sin against him, it's adultery. And you think about it. If you had a spouse who said they were sorry for their unfaithfulness, they've cheated on you, but then continued to commit adultery, how would you feel? about their confession, about their sorrow, about their repentance? Wouldn't you say their love is like the morning mist that vanishes all too easily? That if they buy flowers for me because they've committed adultery but then keep on committing adultery, does that really make up for their sin? They buy me some nice gifts and then it's all okay, we're back to a restored relationship, but they go on sinning. Wouldn't you say that they're... Adultery is like an oven that's burning away, even as they may say some nice things when they come home, but their adultery is going to end up devouring them and the marriage. They're like a half-baked cake, good on one side but ruined on the other. Their repentance is not genuine, like graying hair. Their acts of adultery, every time they're unfaithful, it's like graying hair on the edges of the marriage. They're like a senseless dove, turning everywhere but not the right way and starting to really commit to that spouse rather than going every which way. They may shed a lot of tears, say, I'm really sorry for what I've done. But then their act of adultery shows that they're not sorry at all. They wail all they like, but they're crocodile tears. They're like a faulty bow, aren't they? They look good, maybe. You still like the look of them. You'd like to be married to them and like them to be faithful to you, but... Their continuous acts of adultery show that they're actually a faulty spouse, no matter how good-looking they may be. And if they came back to you with such an attitude, yet continuing on in their sin, showing a kind of repentance, but not a true repentance, would you accept them back while they continue on in their sin? Would you welcome? Think about it. If you had a wife or a husband and they came back after unfaithfulness, but then kept on doing it, would you accept them back? No matter how much they cried, would you accept them if they kept on sinning? The answer is no. If they continue on in their sin, you wouldn't accept them back. And if that's how you feel, then aren't you a hypocrite? If you go to God 
with sorrow about your sin, but are not actually wanting to stop sinning. We know what true repentance ultimately is. We know that we should stop sinning if we are truly repentant. The trouble is we like our sin too much. And yet we're a hypocrite if we think that we don't have to accept someone back who sins against us and continues to sin against us. And I've seen this in my own life all too well. My own hypocrisy is all too apparent to me that I can say sorry to God for something and then next day find myself doing it again. And I'm like those images that have been given to us in the, book, in the chapters here in Hosea. We must yearn for true repentance, which is shown by its deeds, which is what that passage in Matthew chapter 3 said to us, where John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him and were, as he was baptizing, and he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you are truly repentant, then show it by the way that you live. Start producing good fruit in your lives. Now, why should you bother? If sin is so attractive, why would you seek true repentance? Well, it's of course because of the judgment of God. You are quite scared to be found in your sin but also because God actually accepts repentance from sin as a way to restore us, as the way to restore us. That's what those verses in chapter 6, verse 1 through to verse 3, teach us. These words are actually good words if they're backed up by fruit in keeping with the repentance. Look with me again at chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Come... Let us return, let us repent to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. This is a marvellous truth in the scriptures. If it is true repentance backed up by a changed life, God does restore us. He does heal us. He does bind up our wounds if we come to him in true repentance. If you come in genuine repentance to Jesus Christ, he pays for all your sins at the cross by his death so that you can be restored into a right relationship with God now and for the rest of eternity. So I ask you this morning, do you need to repent for the first time? Have you ever shown true repentance towards God? Have you shown instead just a bit of sorrow towards him and you're really like a half-baked cake? Or you're like a senseless dove that turns one way, turns the next. You're turning all over the place. It's not a true repentance. Do you realise that God will tear you to pieces one day for your lack of true repentance? Come to him now. Sort out the graying hair in your life by coming to him in true repentance. Ask him for forgiveness and put your sin to death. Stop sinning. Because you really are sorry for your sin. 
You don't want to be a spouse that says sorry and then goes off and shows you're not sorry at all by committing further acts of adultery. You want to stop being adulterous towards your spouse. You want to do what is right, and so you're going to stop so that God will indeed come to you like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And if you are a Christian, well, there's a wonderful assurance that if you have repented of your sins truly, you are saved but the thing is, as a Christian here in this world, new sins come along all too easily, new temptations, and old temptations can spring back up as well. And there should be an ongoing repentance as well. Yes, we're saved because of the first repentance that we had that time when we came to the Lord and asked for his forgiveness and started to put to death sin in our lives. But I'm sure there's sins in this last week that you can think of that you need to repent of that you need to say, truly, I'm sorry, God, and help me not to commit those sins in the week to come. Help me to slowly put those sins to death so that I am indeed producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Has your relationship with your spouse been hindered this week by something that you've been doing? And you need to come to God now and ask him to bind you to bind up those wounds, to heal you, to be as a morning, as a spring rain, as winter rains, to water you so that you're back in that restored relationship with him. Let's come to God in prayer now. Oh Lord, we confess that we often show false repentance towards you. Even as believers, we have shown true repentance in the past, and we stand upon the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. But Lord, so often we think that we can make up for our sins just by saying sorry to you, offering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and walking away and doing it all over again by going back to the sin that grieves you so much. So Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our false repentance and help us to have true repentance. We pray for anyone here this morning who has never truly repented of their sin. We pray that this morning may be the morning where they finally come to you, acknowledging their sin and wanting to be rid of it, wanting to start to put to death the sin in their lives, that they wail, but they wail to you and find forgiveness in you. So, Lord, we pray that you would indeed grant us repentance that truly changes our lives so that we can be restored into right relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.